Thanks for taking the time to check out this episode of Desert Island Goals. Video links to all the goals we're going to discuss in this podcast are in the description below, as well as social media profiles for myself, the podcast itself, and our guest. Please take the time to follow us all right now. There is a good chance there will be some strong language at some point during this podcast, just letting you know that ahead of time. And please take the time right now to give us a five-star review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Okay. Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Desert Island Goals. I am your host, Callum Squires. Thank you very much for taking the time to check out this podcast, where each week our very special guest details their five goals that they would choose to relive or rewatch if they were cast away on a desert island and could never see any other goals other than those five on repeat for the rest of all eternity. Joining me today is a very special guest, Chris Gress. Chris and I first met each other while Chris was doing a tour of Trinity University in San Antonio, uh, where I was a student and an athlete at the time. And I was told there was a soccer player from London here visiting. And as far as I was concerned at that time, I was the only soccer player from London at Trinity University. So it was a treat to meet another one. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you with us. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Um, I mean... Going off of that, you were you were one of the big parts that brought me to Trinity. I mean, I met this big, lovable guy to on campus, and uh, one of the big draws for me going to Trinity. Really, well, it's very kind, and I'll send you the uh, the twenty dollar memo <laughs> yeah. after the show. Don't worry, appreciate you saying things about me, um, Chris. Obviously, like we said, we met at a university in the states, but but both of us are originally from the UK, and so I think it's always important to introduce you and your background to the listeners so first things first where are you from originally um and what was the process and and how did you end up uh living in the u.s um so well um, so i come from a bit of an international background um my dad is from california and my mum is from uh just south of london big backstory they met in zimbabwe and classic love story uh my dad moved to london for my mum um and that's when i came along uh we lived just uh just around gatwick so pretty not too far from london when i was about 13 uh dad got a job in dallas um so we moved the whole family up and at them and moved to the states um and then obviously as you said a second ago um we uh i needed to go to university somewhere obviously and i didn't know whether i wanted to continue playing soccer or whether i wanted to uh, do the big SEC school or go to back over to London for university. But I decided that I'm only young once. Um, and so decided to come to Trinity and get a great education and have a great time playing football. Absolutely. And I guess, obviously, being from the, the Gatwick area of South London, there's plenty of different clubs in and around that area that you could have become a fan of. And obviously, you are one of, if not the, the biggest fan of a particular club that I know. Um, so... Please explain to us, firstly, what your kind of earliest football memory is. And then I'm sure that will lead into which club you support and, and why. Well, uh, well from, from a very young age, I was, I was playing football for uh, a Chelsea sort of set up team um, in the area. And so that's where my newfound love for my club came from. My best friend at the time, Patrick, um, who I'm sure watched the podcast back, um, he and his dad, uh, that's, I went to school with him and we went to the same football uh, footballing thing at Chelsea. And he was, uh, his dad was a massive Chelsea fan at the time. And being his best friend over at his house all the time, I really didn't have a choice. 
Um, it was sort of pushed upon me and my mum actually grew up sporting Chelsea as well. But the joke in the family is that when she was pregnant with me, she always used to say that I wasn't going to be a sporty baby. I wasn't going to like sports at all. I was going to be more into arts and music. And I came out and completely switched the switched the flip on her. But I suppose my early, earliest footballing memory is, is going to that. Um, Dad will always tell me, always reminds me that the first time I ever played football, he had to come out on the pitch with me and hold my hand while I was playing because I was too scared to. <laughs> I was too scared to play the other boys. Growing up in that area, um, obviously you got a lot of teams. The nearest one to me was Crawley Town, so we used to play against them all the time and um, had a lot of people that liked them as their local. Um, a couple of great memories from friends going to Crawley Town matches, um, specifically. Um, away at United, your your team. I think they lost. I think they lost that game away, but they still put up a a, a good fight. I think it was one nil. As far as Chelsea goes, uh, going to games week in week out with with Patrick and his dad. And most recently, or you know, whenever I'm back for Christmas, I'm always at the matches. Try to get to as many as I can, um, and hopefully many more in the future when I try and maybe move back. I mean that all makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's definitely funny your mum being uh, convinced that you wouldn't be a, a sporty or a, or a soccer as as, they, as we say in the states now, a football fan. Um, and then as far as I'm concerned, yeah, you're completely the opposite yeah. in yeah. terms of about as big a football fan as it gets. I want to just touch on Chelsea specifically because you are, as we discussed before we started recording, that Chris is the the first Chelsea fan to appear on this podcast, which is perhaps a little bit of an oversight from me. Twenty twenty one episodes in, uh, but you definitely won't be the last. I, <laughs> I know that for a fact. Um, uh, insofar as Chelsea, what 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 is it about the, the the club that is is so special to you? And do you have a favorite Chelsea era, shall we say? Because I think in your lifetime, our lifetime, you know, we're we're of a similar age. There have been changes at the club, and there have been some successful periods, some less successful periods, and you know, repeated iterations. Of, of Chelsea with different managers and different identities. We'll, we'll get on to Roman Abramovich a little bit later, but do you have a particular Chelsea era that is your favourite amongst all of it? There, there's definitely been a few where the, the team is, is hard not to love. I'd definitely say, obviously, romanticising it, the, the, the era that I sort of came into watching Chelsea. Um, I mean, I started to be a fan pretty much the year before Abramovich took over. But I'd say when I really got into it, the the 0506 um 0405 like back to back premier league winning title that was probably the era that i'd say probably is my favorite i mean my favorite chelsea player of all time frank lampard after they signed him with that core of john terry drogba ashley cole petacek those guys i mean those are my heroes growing up those are the guys that i always got on the back of the shirt as fans of another team you know you're going to say that you hated them because they were so successful but in, if you look at it as a neutral perspective, I, I don't think it, it's hard not to love that core of players. Similar to yourself and maybe someone like Ferdinand, Vidic, Ryan Giggs. You know, it's like that era of the Premier League is is unmatched, in my opinion. And those players especially were some of my favourites. I think looking more recently, I've got to say that I love the Antonio Conte era of Chelsea. That is just a, a classic example of a team who... You know they were they weren't the flashiest of players, but they grinded out results. Um, and I think uh, that's something to admire in football, especially in in this era when football is is so you know focused on how you score the goal rather than not just scoring the goal. Um, one of my one of my goals later on, I won't spoil it, is is from that era, and I, I just loved his his work ethic that he instilled in the players. And how he pretty much changed the the style of playing in the Premier League to to five in the back, 
I mean, before then it wasn't really that big of a deal, but now half the teams in the league use that system. So I, I'd say that era as well was, was especially especially good. Have you forgiven Antonio Conte for crossing the uh, the rival lines and now being manager of Chelsea? Can you still enjoy his, his past with Chelsea? You know, I've got to look at it from a perspective of he is an Italian that probably doesn't really care too much about um, those 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 boundaries. So I, I think I can forgive him. Um, less forgiveful for Jose Mourinho for for managing United mm, and Tottenham. Interesting. Even though even though I love him and he's he's one of my favourite managers, uh, that's something that is is hard for me to forgive. Well, we will we will talk Jose later on, perhaps uh, as as we get into the mid part of, of your goals here. And obviously the goals are, are why you are here if, if effectively, or in all honesty, that was terrible. We'll talk about Jose a little bit later on uh, as we get into the heart of your list. And obviously the goals on your list is, is why you are here originally, Chris. So in terms of putting this list together, was this a process that you found fun and easy or was it challenging? And what kind of criteria did you use to decide which goals would go on your Desert Island goals well, list? It's funny you say that. I, I remember texting you the other week when, when you asked me to be on the podcast and I said to you, oh, don't worry, I think I've already got my goals. I thought I knew them as soon as you said it. But I'll be honest, it was so hard after after picking those first five. And I thought, actually, there's quite a few other ones that I'd rather have. And it was so hard to, to narrow a list down. And I'm hoping at the end I'll be able to say a few honourable mentions. Because, because Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, I mean, if you think about your lifetime, how many goals you see go in, it's it's so hard to narrow it down to only five. Um, but my, the basis of it is I wanted to co- put in a couple of, um, obviously a couple of goals that are sentimental to me. And those are more core memories from when those goals at the back of the net, how I felt in the moment. And then obviously the other two goals are more based off just the sheer class of the goal. Um, although the first one that I'll talk to you about is more about the player because I have a I have a soft spot for the certain player. And the other goal is for um, the commentating that goes with it as well, I think is very special to me. There he is, Matt Letizia. Okay, goal number one for Chris, and it is a little bit of an outlier and one that I'm actually very interested to hear the reasoning for. Not that it doesn't make sense in terms of the quality of the goal, but as Chris alluded to, this one is perhaps more about the scorer and the quality of the goal than any particular relation to Chris himself. It's certainly not a Chelsea goal. Uh, and we are headed way back in time to, I think it's fair to say, Chris, before you way were born. Before I was born. Um, yeah. But this one, yeah, which, don't say <laughs> way I was born then. <laughs> so we are in uh, October of 1993. So I was, I was 24 days old. So I guess fair enough. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's way back in the past at this point. Uh, but this is Southampton two, Newcastle United one. And this game is infamous for a brace of goals scored by, I think it's fair to say, Southampton's most iconic and arguably most talented player of all time. Some might suggest Virgil van Dijk, but, you know, let's be realistic here. Matthew Letizia. Now, Letizia is an interesting character because he was an absolutely incredible footballer who's gone on to maybe say some questionable things in the recent couple of years here. Um, and certainly, I think with everything going on in the world right now, more than ever, 
there is a uh, a debate about can you separate the the art from the artist shall we say and how you can love someone in the 90s and maybe not love them quite so much in the noughties you know what i mean but Letizier, unequivocally a premier league legend on the pitch some unbelievable finishes and this one is no different Letizier scores both goals for Southampton in this 2-1 win, either side of an Andy Cole equaliser. Andy Cole is a name we haven't had enough on this podcast because he's an all-time Premier League great, a very underrated player uh, for a multitude of teams, including Newcastle and Manchester United. But this goal, Chris, is absolutely special from start to finish. And to, to call it juggling would almost be an insult to juggling, really. Because Letizia controls it with a back heel, flicks it past one defender, flicks it over the other defender, and then just waits for it to fall and strokes it into the bottom corner past the Newcastle goalkeeper, Mike Hooper. And it, it it's breathtaking. It really is from start to finish. Chris, take it away. Matthew Letizia, this particular goal, obviously before your time. So I guess what was your earliest memory of seeing this goal? And what is it about this that, that has to be included on your goals yeah. list? So, uh, as, I, as I said earlier, it's more about the player. And as I know, he has kind of come across uh, in recent times as being not as nice as people have originally thought him to be. <laughs> However, and as you said, I probably could have picked either of the goals that he scored in this match to, mm-hmm. to be in this list. Mm-hmm. Um, but my earliest memory of watching this goal, um, I, I, as I said earlier, I was a football fanatic from for as long as I can remember. And the times I spent um, in the summer months watching Premiership years on Sky Sports, this goal was one that always came up, always, always, always. And so the research I did on this goal um, back then and back and to now, and the times I tried recreating this goal in the back garden, it is a certain level of finesse and charm and the, the way that he glides past one, glides past two with the flicks. And then you commonly see players try and blast this into the corner off, off of a volley. Um, but the way he opens his foot up and puts it in the back corner is it's just you can't get you can't really get a better goal than this now though the other reason I like this goal as well is for the fact that I think Letizia is a very underrated player as far as players go in Premier League history um, especially after moving to the US a lot of times I'll tell my friends about this goal my American friends and they say who's Matt Letizia and I think it's something that's a bit sad, but also something that I commend him for, um, for his loyalty to Southampton. I think that's a hard trait to find now. I mean, not so much back then. Um, but I think if he had made a move to a big club, he probably would have been a lot more famous than he is now. Um, and I think, I mean, loyalty is one of my, my biggest things that I think is the most important thing I have in my life that I, I really I really try and stick to. And so I admire him for that, even for his faults today. The goal in question as well at the time, he'd gone through a streak of not scoring in about five matches, I think, before this. And it was questionable whether he was going to play. And he'd come on and done some of the two most amazing goals that had been seen in the Premier League era um, up until that point. I, I found it really interesting because of a YouTube video that I found of this goal. It had, you know, both both games and it actually had like the Sky Sports pregame on it. And it was uh, Richard Keyes from back in the day on Sky Sports in the yep. studio asking then sideline reporter Nick Collins, does Letizia play? So clearly there was some debate before the game if he was even going to start for Southampton, um, despite, you know, I think already being fairly entrenched as their talisman. And, you know, he would go on to be for another five, six years after this. Certainly he was still playing for them in kind of 98, 99, 2000 yeah. times. 
and yeah, to, to do what he does. I mean, this, you, you're right, Chris. The second goal in this game is outrageous as well. So the video clips for all these goals, as always, are in the description of the podcast. But if anyone does not know Malatissier well enough or has not seen these goals, just find them both because they're both outrageous. And it gives you a kind of a snapshot of what uh, Letissier could do and did do on a regular basis. I I totally agree with you in, I think he probably could and maybe... It's difficult to say should because I I hear you completely on the loyalty and being a one club man is is exceptionally rare nowadays. But he absolutely would have been a bigger household name internationally and maybe in Premier League history if he if he had been at a quote unquote top six club for part of his career. I guess with the recent introduction of the Premier League Hall of Fame. Is that something that you think you know is is essential for players of the calibre of Matt Letizia? Um That's a tough one because I think the Premier League seen so many amazing players that it's hard to put yourself out there if you haven't won the league or if you haven't, you know, contributed in that in that sense. I think more so as well. I would contribute Letizia to really um, sort of boosting my love of football throughout throughout my lifetime as well. I mean, he's always been the reporter on Soccer Saturday um, at three yep. o'clock. You know, you switch that on, and he's always the one reporting on reporting on the matches in the office with uh, with all the rest of the guys. And like, I, I, I think it's hard to say because of what he said in recent times. But I, I think his his sort of character was really one of the big uh, sort of impetuses that got me into football so much as it did. Um, and you know. Coupling that with the goals that he scored, I, I couldn't leave him off the list. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's the sort of thing that you should feel the need to have to defend him. By yeah. it's like yeah. it's not. Don't don't feel like that at all because uh, you you can't know when you fall in love with someone uh, at a certain age uh, how uh, how they might turn out in the future. And certainly, I think um, there's a lot of Manchester United fans who might feel that about a certain Portuguese person uh, right now, based on the uh, affection they had for them, circa 2003 to 2009, maybe. Um, and uh, what's happened in the rest of their career on and off the field. I, I just had a quick Google in terms of the, the Premier League Hall of Fame and the names who are already in from the first two classes of 21 and 22. We're talking Beckham, Shearer, Henri, Bergkamp, Cantona, Lampard, Gerard, Keane, Aguero, Schmeichel, Ian Wright, Company, Drogba, Rooney, Vieira, and Scholes. Now, I don't think anybody could really look me in the face and tell me comfortably that Letizia was better than any of those players but in terms of the importance to the team he played for I think there's an argument he was as integral as most if not all of those players to Southampton surviving in the Premier League whenever yeah, they did. absolutely I mean over the course of his time he scored what 120 goals in you know 400 matches which is a fantastic record for someone playing in a team that was not at the top of the league every year and what a lot of people don't know as well is that during the height of his his, you know, his playing abilities. A lot of clubs were coming in for him. Uh, I mean, Chelsea had a ten million pound bid for him, which at the time was going to be the most expensive player in history um, for the Premier League. So I, I, I just think it's 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 just a testament to his love for a club and his, you know, his ability to look past just winning trophies and playing just for the love of the game rather than uh, um, for the money. <laughs> Chelsea 
have said they're going to show spirit, and there's a sign of it. Fantastic run from Ramirez. What a finish that is. But they're back in the game. And moments after being shown the car that would rule him out of a final, he has given Chelsea fresh hope. Okay, goal number two for Chris, and we are with Chris's beloved Chelsea Football Club. And in what I think it's fair to say is arguably the most momentous season in Chelsea history, I think certainly up until that moment, based on the the impact of, uh, well, spoiler alert, winning the Champions League. And so we are going to have two different goals from this run, and you can probably guess uh, what the second one's going to be. The first one comes in the semi-final second leg and we are at the Nou Camp in Barcelona for a game that finishes Chelsea 2, Barcelona 2. But telling you the scoreline doesn't tell you anything like the whole story. It's quite remarkable from start to finish. Chelsea had won the first leg 1-0 and went to Barcelona knowing that a draw or a loss in which they scored by one goal, uh, would be enough to get them through on the now sadly defunct away goals rule. But it's chaos from the moment go, really, basically. Uh, 12 minutes in, Gary Cahill, who was part of the centre-back partnership with John Terry, uh, limps off with an injury. Uh, 25 minutes later, there or thereabouts, Sergio Busquets puts Barcelona ahead. And then just two minutes later, John Terry, who is probably one of the few players that Chris and I are going to have a disagreement about during the discussion here. Uh, John Terry gets a red card for, I think it's fair to say, a fairly mindless piece of uh, defending where I think he need Alexis Sanchez in the, in the thigh, right? Um, absolute insanity. And just seven minutes later, Andres Iniesta, who had broken Chelsea hearts before, need we, need we forget, uh, put Barcelona 2-0 up and it looked for all the world that without both their centre-backs they started the game with, down 2-0, Chelsea had absolutely no hope of getting through. And yet, Frank Lampard finds Ramirez running through and the Brazilian scores with the most audacious finish over Victor Valdez, an unbelievable chip that really has to be seen to be believed, which all of a sudden at half-time means that Chelsea are technically still going through on away goals. Despite the fact, and I remember, I can vividly tell you where I was watching this game, and not one person in the pub, including my Chelsea fan friend sat to my right, could believe that you had any chance of going through. And yet the Ramirez goal gave Chelsea that hope. With five minutes played in the second half, Lionel Messi, heard of him, misses a penalty, smashes it against the crossbar, and Gary Neville on commentary says something to the effect of, written in the stars, because everything unbelievably, is falling Chelsea's way. To call it backs to the wall defending for the next half an hour, 40 minutes, would be not enough, not sufficient. And then we get the famous moment in the 90th minute where Fernando Torres gets the breakaway and scores the goal that puts it beyond doubt. The game finishes 2-2. Chelsea would have been fine either way. But Chelsea go on to the Champions League final, which, again, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about in just a couple of minutes here. But... It's this Ramirez goal that Chris has picked. I think you could have very easily taken either goal in this game. I completely agree. I completely so, agree. So, so why the Ramirez goal over the Torres goal? And then take me back to your memories of this day and, and where you were watching this. 
So specifically the Ramirez goal, simply because, uh, as you said, I could have easily put the Torres goal in there. However, I think the, the timing of the Ramirez goal just before half-time, after going 2-0 down and having a man sent off, it, it was it was essential that we got back in the game before half-time. And I think as well, not only that, just the, the, the pure class of having the composure um, at the Camp Nou, needing a goal, and he's through on goal and he's just, as you said, the most audacious chip imaginable. Um, I, I don't know how how he thought of that, that was a good idea. And then going over into the corner flag and, and doing his little Brazilian dance that I think we've seen quite a lot of at the World Cup currently is is absolutely brilliant. And I, I think as well, the the commentating and the crowd noise to go with that goal as well was, was something that was just so special. The loud silence of the new Camp when he put that goal in was just incredible um and at the time i we actually just moved to texas when this game was going on and i'd i'd left school early to go home and watch it um because obviously i was i was in school at this time so uh it was it was um early in the afternoon and i was just at the house by myself um and i really thought it wasn't the it wasn't it wouldn't be the last time that i'd cried thinking that we'd lost in this champions league run but i was i was sat Two nil down, a man down, uh, floods of tears sitting on the settee. Twelve-year-old um, Chris was was had going through horrific memories of the the final in Moscow five years le- earlier when Terry missed his penalty, um, and there was just no way that we were coming back. I mean, this was this was the Barcelona team that was the team. This is arguably one of the best teams in history, and also the added caveat of the fact that. We'd lost to Barcelona um, on a couple of terrible refereeing decisions in previous years at the bridge when Essien had scored a fantastic goal. So the the poetic the poeticness of this goal is something that just is completely unmatched. You, you talk about this Barcelona team, and I, I think it is it is only fair to highlight uh, just how good they were. Victor Valdez in goal, I'm not a big fan of. That's that's the thing I have to deal with. But Puyol, PK, Mascherano at the back with Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta in front of them, Messi, Sanchez, Fabregas, and Cuenca in the attacking positions. It's pretty much a ridiculous lineup. They bring Danny Alves on when PK goes off injured. Christian Teo came on. Sedu Keita came on. I mean, it's an unbelievable Barcelona team. Uh, Thiago Alcantara, now Liverpool midfielder, on the bench. Pedro, who you know had scored goals in Champions League finals before on the bench. It's an unbelievable Barcelona team. And this was a Chelsea in fair to say a little bit of chaos with Roberto Di Matteo at the helm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interim manager, we were sitting in sixth, seventh in the league, top four had by this point in the season had pretty much gone out the window. And we knew the only way to get back in the Champions League for next season was by winning it. Just this run in general, I think a lot of people forget it's what we were talking about in the intermission was how the the games not the game previous, but in the round of 16, we'd played Napoli and lost the first leg 3-1 away from home. And we should have been out of that game, really. I mean, it took a couple of last-minute goals at the bridge to be able to do that and a winner from Ivanovic in extra time to send us through there. And every game, it seemed just like, was just, we just, as Martin Tyler says, eventually, just would not let go in the Champions League, especially with the, the pain that we'd been through in previous years as I said, the the John Terry penalty slip, going out in the semi-final at the same stage to Barcelona off of the Iniesta goal, 
because the footballing gods couldn't have written it themselves. It was it was perfect. And for Ramirez to pull out a finish like he did, I, I couldn't not have that one in. Um, and a lot of people will say that the Torres goal with, with the Gary Neville commentary when he goes around the keeper is, is special, and it is. Um, but we'd already had the game won by then. Well, we'd already we'd already in the winning position to go through by then. And I don't think we would have had a hope in hope in hell if Ramirez hadn't have made the run to go forward. And bearing in mind as well as we've been defending that whole time as well, God bless his legs. He must have been just, you know, he was running all over the pitch and he made the lung-busting bu- lung run to go all the way from playing holding holding midfielder to going into the other, other team's box and dinking it over, over the keeper. It's just absolutely unbelievable. I think you made the right decision between you and me. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think I think the Ramirez goal is is the special one of the two. The Torres one obviously has meaning to it, and uh, you're right with the commentary. There's a special celebration that follows it, but the quality of the goal, the, the Torres goal, is effectively a clearance, and Torres is just being a little bit cheeky and a little bit lazy, hanging out by the halfway line. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll forgive goal, him. You know. We'll forgive him this time. Yeah, and you know the commentary says fifty million pounds has been repaid in 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 one goal, and to be fair, it was definitely the highlight of Fernando Torres' Chelsea career. <laughs> yeah, the, the the thing that I've just realised in doing my research to talk to you today is the the parallel between this Ramirez goal and another famous Champions League semi final goal scored by Roy Keane. Manchester United against Juventus in, in 1999 is that Ramirez had been booked a few minutes earlier and knew he was missing the final. Just as Roy Keane had against Juventus when he dragged United back into that game that they would go on to win, Ramirez knows that this goal gets Chelsea to the final potentially and he won't be able to play. And we'll go on to that Chelsea lineup in just a couple of minutes here. But the spirit that you have to show to be able to, as you said, make that lung bursting run and then... I, I mean, I've run out of words to describe the finish, really, to be completely yeah. honest, because it's just so, it, it is, it's everything. It's audacious, it's skillful, it's classy. The composure but, as well. Oh, absolutely. It's composed. And and I, and the, the pub I was watching it in, the faltering fullback in North London, about 15 minutes walk from where I am right now, went absolutely crazy, or at least the Chelsea fans inside did, because, you know, it's probably an Arsenal <laughs> pub overall. But most of us there, for whatever reason, were cheering for Chelsea. A remarkable finish and honestly, just such a great moment. I, I, for me, the best moment of Ramirez's Chelsea career for sure. Yeah, I think Ramirez especially was a bit of an unsung hero. I think we've had Chelsea have had quite a lot of those in the Roman Ramovich era. And I think he was a player that he did have some some faults and he was a bit unrefined. But he was a player that you could rely on and would always have a bit of flair. But was most importantly a hard worker, I think, is the was the, was the underlying theme. And I think that's most of the reason why he got his goal. Yeah, it, 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 and you're right. It's a long-busting run. Um, Frank Lampard, Chelsea legend, never showed up for England. I'm just going to say <laughs> that quietly. Um, Frank Lampard with a, a wonderful through ball, to be fair, um, to Ramirez. And Ramirez with that dink over Victor Valdez. And at that point, you know, you have to then basically think about holding out. And I, get, I guess the question just in the context of the game is, did, did you... Was there a point at which you fully believed that it was happening? Did the Messi penalty the Messi, miss? The Messi penalty miss. The Messi, the, the Messi penalty miss was the one where it was okay. The, the footballing gods are on our side today. When the best player in the world is hitting penalties against a crossbar, then you've uh, and that and this is Messi at the very height of his powers. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember how many. I think this might have been the year that he had the hundred goals in the calendar year or something like that. And so for him, for him missing the penalty is, I mean, I. I thought for sure he was going in. 
<laughs> and Chelsea celebrate as they progress to the final. Well, it's possibly bleak as this. Okay, goal number three for Chris. And you know where we're headed because we've kind of just given it away. But where else could we be than the 2012 UEFA Champions League final in Munich between Bayern Munich and Chris's beloved Chelsea Football Club? This was a game that had a lot on the line, not just for the two taking part in the game, Bayern and Chelsea, but equally for Tottenham Hotspur in North London. And I remember my Chelsea sporting friends being almost as elated that they'd won the cup by the end of this game as the fact that Chelsea winning the cup meant that Tottenham Hotspur were not going to be in the Champions League next year. Because at that stage, there was a limit of four teams from any country that could be in it. And as a result of Chelsea finishing outside the top four but winning the Champions League, that meant the fourth place in the Premier League did not get into the following season's Champions League, which was heartbreaking for Tottenham at the time, but I know Chelsea absolutely loved it. Anyway, the game itself is a 1-1 draw and Chelsea win the game 4-3 on penalties. But again, that only tells part of the story. I remember the game, and you, you, can, you can challenge me if you like, Chris, that's absolutely fine, but I, I remember the game being fairly dominant control from Bayern Munich throughout. The Chelsea lineup is interesting. I believe Ryan Bertrand started on the left wing and and that came out of absolutely nowhere is my recollection. He was kind of thrown in as a second left back to try and deal with the threat of Arjen Robin, which is totally understandable considering how good uh, of a player Robin was. But with David Luiz and Gary Cahill at centre-back because of John Terry's aforementioned red card, and Jose Bossingwa, a left back, up against again another talented. Sorry, Jose Bossingwa, a right back, up against Frank Ribery. It was not the most secure Chelsea back four you've ever seen. But Chelsea held out for over 80 minutes. And then, with just seven minutes to play, Thomas Muller scores the goal. And it looks for all the world like this dream run from Chelsea to the final, four years on from defeat in, in Moscow against United. It looks like it's going to end in defeat again. But who else would step up other than Didier Drogba? And Juan Mata swings a corner in with just two minutes left on the clock. And Didier Drogba powers home a header at the near post. Manuel Neuer can't keep it out. Chelsea hang on through extra time. We go to penalties. And of course, who's taking the fifth penalty that he would have taken instead of John Terry? In 2008, had he not been sent off in extra time of the final four years earlier, Didier Drogba puts it in the bottom corner. Chelsea win the Champions League. Pandemonium everywhere. It was an incredible game. I vividly remember this. But Drogba's header in and of itself is obviously the goal that Chris has selected. 
there's so much to say about Didier Drogba and about this Chelsea team, about this run. And we're going to finish with a little bit on, on Roman Abramovich and his era as a head of Chelsea, effectively. But Chris, take me back to the final. Where were you watching this in 2012? And, and what are your memories of, of the game, the day and the goal itself? Well, as I said, for the last goal, we just moved to Texas. So I was I was in Texas. Um, we were playing, my team was playing in a tournament this weekend. And I believe I I, I told told my coach at the time that I was going to be half an hour late to, to warming up because I had to, I was expecting the game to finish before. But obviously with extra time and penalties, I, I was going to be late. Um, and it's a similar story to the Barcelona game, really. I, I, I thought when the Muller goal went in, you know, the tears were flowing. It was same old, same old. Um, and there was another moment like that, which a lot of people forget that Iron Robin missed a penalty in extra time as well from Drogba fouling him. Um, and that save from Petr Cech is arguably as good as the header from, from Drogba. Um, but the goal itself, I mean, we were dead and buried. Um, as you said, the lineup was was left a lot to be desired, to say the least. Um, and Mata, who's also one of my favourite Chelsea players, um, I, I love the way he played um, and what he brought to the team. He was Mr. Positive. There's a, a famous story about that goal where where he went over to Drogba and said, "Look, mate, like we can do this. We we've got this." And from that corner, he whips it in, and the the sheer um, determination, I think, is, is the only word you can use to describe it to win the header and put it in. Um, if you look at the slow motion replay, he's got um, can't remember who was marking him. It looks like Jerome, Jerome Boateng to yeah. me. I'm and watching it back, and now. he's got. I mean, what I'm what I'm kind of confused by is like he is being marked, but he also gets very free. Yeah, well, uh, like, he gets he, free. They've got arms on him, but he gets he, he gets wide open. He to almost it. gets pushed into the ball from from the back. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know whether they all say that worked in his favour or what, but the the neck muscles, the 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 accuracy of the header, the fact that Neuer just couldn't do anything about it off of his palms into the top corner at the Chelsea end is 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 delirium. Um, I mean, and the Martin Tyler and Gary Neville commentary to go with it um, is is unmatched. I mean, I think that that goal is probably the most important goal in in, in Chelsea history, um, and I don't think any Chelsea fan will correct me on that. And I think from that alone, I mean, Drogba was already a legend as enough as it was at Chelsea. Even after that, he he can do no wrong as far as Chelsea fans are concerned. He is he is our our Lord and Savior, but he's the man. And I have a lot of I have a lot of arguments with with people, especially in in my house, um, and with football fans all over, about the importance of Didier Drogba. And I th- I think that a lot of times um, people will choose the flashier player, um, your Henri's, um, your Bergkamp's, as as being a better player than Drogba. And they probably were better players, but there's no one that I would rather have as my striker in my team than Didier Drogba. He is the big man for the big occasion. The amount of goals and the amount of big performances he puts in in finals is is nothing short of a miracle. I think really the only one where you could critique him is the 2008 final where he got sent off. Really, yeah. I mean, I I remember him winning FA Cups for you guys like it was going out of fashion. Yeah, um, he scored he scored the winner against us in 2007. I think it was yeah the first game at the New Wembley, and you know, yeah, I I, I think Drogba. People try to overanalyze Didier Drogba at times. 
and I've seen regularly people point out his his Premier League goal scoring stats, and I think I think there's something along the lines of he only scored twenty or more Premier League goals in two seasons. He only did it twice, I think. But to boil what Didier Drogba was to Chelsea in that era, starting from Mourinho all the way to to Di Matteo here. To boil it down to just goal scoring would be a huge disservice to what Didier Drogba did physically, mentally, and and just what he meant, I guess, spiritually to that Chelsea team. Because along with Lampard, along with Terry, I guess along with SEN for a while, and and obviously Petr Cech, he he was the lifeblood of that team. Absolutely. I, I mean, he as I said on the, on opening for the podcast, he's part of that core group of players that I looked up to as a, as a as a kid. The spine of that team is something that I think is is pivotal for teams to have a sustainable winning um, winning record in in any league. And I think if you look at some of the great teams that we've seen in previous years in the in the Premier League, it's it's a necessity to 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 be winning. As you said, I, I don't think it was just the goals. I mean, just his attitude and mentality that he brought to the team was something that was just unbelievable. Drogba was one of the first kind of big signings of the the Abramovich era at Chelsea, shall we say. And certainly he was integral to what Jose Mourinho did in his stint at, at Chelsea. And in a weird way, I guess the story arc of Roman Abramovich's Chelsea starts in 2004. And to an extent, the first period of it finishes with this win in 2012. Obviously, he, he carried on being an owner for another 10 years. But in terms of what Roman Abramovich wanted to achieve with Chelsea, it was always talked about that his dream was to win the Champions League. And obviously, it didn't happen in 2008. There was the Iniesta goal in 2009. And then in 2012, and, and I should say before that, there was the Luis Garcia ghost goal Absolutely. way back when in 2000, uh, 2006, I think it was, which... Jose will never let us uh, forget about, obviously, with the Anfield crowd and uh, what referees can be like there. But Abramovich wanted to win the Champions League. It didn't happen in, in Moscow. It did happen in Munich. Regardless of anything else, what what are, what are your feelings towards the Abramovich era? Obviously, you know, taking and I'm not getting at all political with this in terms of who he is, what his money, where his money came from, but purely with Chelsea in terms of what was achieved by the club in the Abramovich era. In my mind, he has to go down for most Chelsea fans as, as a hero. Is that, is that fair? Is that right? Is uh, there, or is there, or is there any sort of ill will towards him based on, I guess, his willingness to fire managers here, there and everywhere, but it often worked out. As far as Roman goes for among Chelsea fans, he's definitely, you know, a hero for us. Um, I think in terms of the way he treated managers, I think, yes, it is frowned upon. And yes, do I wish that we'd had a manager that had been sustained the same way throughout all my lifetime, uh, in the same way that Sir Alex Ferguson was for United? Absolutely. But I think that the mentality that he has instilled at Chelsea from the ruthlessness that he has, you know, put forth with managers is something that got us to where we are now. I mean, I don't think we would have been as successful had he had kept with a certain manager as opposed to firing some. And I think a lot of Chelsea fans will, will will agree with me that a lot of times you just have to sort of trust him. And I think there were some times where he made some questionable hires and questionable fires. But overall, if you look at the trophies that we've won uh, before we'd won them, you'd absolutely say, yeah, do whatever, do whatever it takes. I mean, 
Chelsea before we before we won the Premier League titles. I mean, we hadn't won anything in years, you know, up until probably the FA Cup with Roberto Di Matteo scoring the goal then. I think that besides any of his political agenda, I think he was a fantastic owner. I think, it, you know, he's in, in infrastructure, the youth system. I mean, you look at the amount of players that play not at Chelsea, but who are still professional players. I mean, we've created so many talents in the world, in world football at the moment. Um, I mean, and say what you will about our loan, our loan system and our what it was. Um, but I mean, a lot of teams wouldn't have the players that they do without that system. Um, I think that how he implemented that and the money that he put into it, he, he's um, a, ma- a massive person, not only for Chelsea, but for football as a whole. Just lastly, before we move on to to, to a different era, this... This I, again, I said, like I, I think this final kind of wraps up the original era of of Abramovich's Chelsea. It, is Didier Drogba for you your your number one favorite player in that era? Is it is it Frank or JT? Is it is it even possible to decide? I I think it's for me as much as I've just fawned over Drogba for the last half an hour. I think it's um my it's got to be it's got to be Frank Lampard for me. He was someone that. I I tried to model my game off of a lot growing up and um, he was the player that I used to pretend to be in the garden and all my shirts were all Lampard. Raise the roof of the Etihad Stadium. And here's Hazard. Korov goes across and then Hazard speeds past him. Mr. Rapid up! The classic counter-attack. And for Chelsea, what a statement here in the second half in Manchester. Okay, goal number four for Chris. And we are still with Chelsea for the final time on this list. But we are fast forwarding about four years to a new Chelsea, a different era of Chelsea. This one under Antonio Conte. And we are in, at the time, what was... A fairly big game in in the title race, even even in December of 2016, between Manchester City, managed by Pep Guardiola, and Chelsea. City take the lead uh, through a Gary Cahill own goal right on the stroke of halftime. And again, my recollection of this game is it was fairly consistent one-way traffic for, for most of the first hour until Cesc Fabregas finds a wonderful ball over the top to Diego Costa, who brushes off Otamendi, chests it down, and smacks a finish, as he so often did, Costa, uh, into the net to equalize for Chelsea. And then 10 minutes later, a classic counter-attack sucker punch from a Manchester City corner. The ball eventually finds its way to Willian, the Brazilian who... I'd be interested to get your take on, Chris, because I think Willian divided opinion for some, but for a long time was a very, very valuable player for Chelsea. And Willian finishes it to give che- to give Chelsea the 2-1 advantage. But the final touches are put on a 3-1 Chelsea win by, again, I think someone who in some aspects is a little bit underrated in Premier League history because he was absolutely unplayable for a couple of seasons in Eden Hazard. And Hazard breaks away and finishes the game in the 90th minute with a wonderful finish. Just everything you like about Eden Hazard, really. Composure when he gets to it and the quality to seal the game for Chelsea. A 3-1 win. There are a couple of uh, 
added time red cards for Aguero and Fernandinho in this game. Aguero launches himself at David Luiz, which I think we are fair enough to say that a lot of people have thought about doing. Um, so Aguero tries to launch himself at David Luiz, gets a red card, and Fernandinho pushes Cesc Fabregas over the advertising board and uh, also gets a red card in, a, in what was a strange end to a feisty game. But Chris, take me back to your memories of this and, and why this one made your list. Is is Eden Hazard someone you just had to have on the list? Yeah, so I, I did toy with the idea of a couple of other goals from Eden Hazard. Um, I think Eden Hazard is a player at Chelsea that was just absolutely unbelievable to watch. I mean, on TV and in person. Um, and as you said, I think as far as Premier League era goes, maybe slightly underrated, maybe not. I it, he was a fantastic player um, and a lot of people will say that his stats didn't quite live up to how good people say that he was. But I think what he brought us for the team um, was phenomenal. I mean, he was someone that drew players towards him. Not only if he, even if he didn't have the ball, you know, people were always aware of him and creating space for other players. Um, I mean, and his ability with the ball at the feet, it's just, it's a bit sad to see how he is at the moment, um, especially for me. Um, that's that's the best 100 million that Chelsea's ever made, I think. But this goal specifically, it's an interesting one, actually. The game itself, it was in December, but as you say, it was it was a big big game in the title race that we ended up win, going on to win the title. Honestly, it's a goal that I can't really even tell you why I love it so much. I love, absolutely love, uh, the, the boys in my, in, in my house will tell you the next time you see them how, how much I often watch this goal on YouTube. Um, and I was I was actually showing uh, Jake Simon, uh, someone who you know very well, um, this goal in the car before I came onto the podcast. Not only is it, not only was it for the win at City, um, but just like the romanticising of this goal is unbelievable. Um, if you if you do do watch the uh, do watch the clip um, that Callum links to it in the description. Um, I'm not sure which which commentators he has for the the highlight that he's added, but um, specifically when Martin Tyler he says um, Eden Hazard breaking away this to wrap it up, and it's just the the perfect um, the perfect pause after he shoots the ball before the ball it has just the absolute perfect sound of hitting the back of the net um, that somebody whoever the, the audio tech for that game. Um, needs to have a massive raise. They put the mic right next to the goal. Um, and when it hits the back of the net and you look at the Chelsea fans in the away end in just their absolute waves going towards uh, going towards Hazard as he does his classic knee slide into the corner, it, it is just like the ideal romantic goal. Like if you're just a lover of football, you cannot love, not love this goal and all of the sounds and images that go with it, in my opinion. It's, it's perfect. I don't want. I don't want to spoil your honourable mentions because you're talking about other other Hazard goals, and maybe we'll discuss another one later, or I'll, I'll suggest one that maybe you could have had. Um, but I think it's interesting that you picked a goal against Manchester City. Obviously, that obviously, like you said, this is a, a big game in the title race and a title race that Chelsea go on to win. But insofar as Manchester City, uh, are they a team that you hold a, a particular ill feeling towards? Do you class them as a rival? Is that something that really affects you because? It, 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 they're a team that, with no disrespect meant, came on a similar trajectory to Chelsea in terms of got a lot of money very quickly and made an ascent to the very top of world football. 
Um, do, what what are your feelings towards Man City as a, as um, an entity? Yeah, so I mean, obviously they're they're an unbelievable side, and they've got to be you know looked at as a rival in terms of their footballing ability. But I mean, whenever we're out of the title race, I will um, I, I will always want Man City to be the ones that win the league, as opposed to anyone else. I think um, for them as well, it's it's. All, all footballing rivalries aside, you just love to watch them play, especially now under Pep Guardiola. I mean, the style of football that they play with the players that they have, um, they just play a phenomenal brand of football. Um, and as you said, I mean, they did come up the same way in which we've had our rise to the top. And I think as well, just their fans are just a, a lot less annoying as well, to be honest. I think, you know, if they win the league, it's sort of just like, oh yeah, that's that's fine. Like, they spent all the money. It's not really that big of a deal. But you know, when 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 I've got to deal with hearing about how Arsenal are top of the league at the moment, and how you know the the, the old rivalry with United, and don't get me started on people that support the Scousers. I I I, uh, I, I just I, I just despise it. But I think with City, it's it's less of a problem for me. Yeah, definitely. I thought that might be the case, which is why I asked the question. I think it's interesting the uh, the difference in uh, in. I guess feeling towards towards City, and I, I think that translates through through a lot of people. We spoke a little bit earlier about Jose Mourinho, and maybe that you didn't quite hold the same level of affection for him now that you you do for Antonio Conte, which I think is fair, but is also interesting and raises a couple of interesting questions because Mourinho is often criticised for his pragmatic approach to winning some games, and there are elements of this game and the performance from Chelsea that are reminiscent of some elements of the Mourinho era. And what I wanted to ask you was, why is the Conte era viewed in a more positive light than I guess some aspects of Mourinho football? Because I do think inherently there are some similarities between the two. Or do you see them as completely different brands of football when they're you know in their place in Chelsea history? It's it's a very tough question, and I, I will preface with the fact that I, I still love Jose. I mean, I think I, I I still hold a massive affinity for him, and I think I honestly, if I was a professional footballer, he would be the manager that I want to play under. I think he would be the person that I would probably you know want to put my body on the line for. I was especially disappointed just though with him and the the connections that he has to Chelsea um, going to Tottenham because he knows of that rivalry. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's a little bit different with Conte just purely because um, I think Conte was let go quite harshly as well. So I, I don't really hold a grudge for him to be, you know, have any love loss with us at all. I I, uh, I think the brands of football were similar in their sense of grittiness. However, I would say Conte definitely had more of a defined style of football, I would, I would, I would argue, um, especially as I mentioned, touched on earlier. How I mean, he he revolutionised, you know, the style of play in the Premier League with with the five five at the back with the with the overlapping wing backs. I mean, he he revitalised Victor Moses's career, um, <laughs> uh, and and if, if someone yeah. can if someone can do that, I mean, they've got to be pretty special. <laughs> um, uh, and I think that that style of of even though we were the better team, we were in a lot of games playing on the counter attack, um, which I, I quite enjoy. I, I, I quite like that style of football. Um, and 
um, getting getting the best out of those players, specifically after the season that we'd had the year before, when we'd had one of the worst seasons I mean I've ever been alive for, um, finishing tenth, I believe. Coming back and winning the league right after that season was was very important to um, you know getting back onto the level of where we should be as as Chelsea Football Club. I, I think he's a manager that you love that he's passionate about the team. He's always running down a sideline with the fans. He's someone that the fans, you know, you just can't not love him. Rank me these Chelsea managers in order of your affection for them as managers. Okay. Con- Conte, Mourinho, Hiddink, Di Matteo, Avram Grant. Ah, it's so tough. And I'm going to get crucified by people watching this because I'm just going to go back completely on what I've just said. <laughs> um, but as much as much as I've just said that I, 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 I don't like the fact that he went to Tottenham, Jose Mourinho, for me, I've got to have him at number one. I, just, just the type of person he is. Um, some people hate him and I just, I just love it. I just love, I just love his ability to get into the heads of other people. Um, the tactics he brings are just phenomenal. Um, and I think I would actually go with, I think I would actually go with Conte at number two. See, now it gets a little bit tougher. I'd probably go Di Matteo three, purely because he has to be in there for the Champions League win. Hiddink, Hiddink four, and Avram Grant five. And I think Avram Grant was I think Avram Grant was harshly harshly fired after the loss to Man United in the final and I would have loved to have seen him for another couple of seasons at Chelsea. But purely because I just didn't get enough, enough time to establish a connection with him, he's five. And I realised immediately that I missed out a very obvious one that should have been in there, Carlo Ancelotti. Ah, uh, yeah. Carlo Ancelotti I think Carlo Ancelotti is one of the one of the best managers of 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 all time. I think he's in the top five, um, but I put him. I probably put him above Di Matteo at three. It is Kieran Trippier. It is delicious, glorious, glorious England goal. Picture perfect. There is not a better strike than that. Okay, goal number five for Chris. We have reached Chris's fifth and final goal. And it's one that is pretty relevant considering what's going on in the world right now as we are at the 2018 FIFA World Cup. And this is the semi-final between Croatia and England. So yes, you already know how this one ends. And you already know that Chris and I are going to be talking about a slightly bittersweet, well, I guess sweet then bitter moment. Uh, as Kieran Trippier gives England the lead five minutes in with a fantastic free kick that unfortunately would lead to nothing in the end. And we are going to do a little chat about the state of the World Cup and uh, and England's potential prospects uh, as we finish this. But Chris, talk, talk us through why Kieran Trippier's free kick, as good as it was, uh, despite the ending of the game, why did this one have to be on your list? Yeah, d- despite the ending, this goal was on the list purely because of the memories that I have associated with it. Obviously, a, a sad ending, but I think 
this this that World Cup was probably one of the best the best months I can remember um, of my life. I mean, I just graduated high school. Um, we were in England, um, and just it was World Cup fever. We had a team that could finally um, actually compete. And although we may have had an easy route to the to the semi final, I think it was you know first time in my lifetime that I'd actually had a bit of belief about an England team going far in a World Cup. And I think it, it sort of set us up to where we are where we are today. Um, and when that goal went in, um, and the pub I was in, you know no space to move shoulder to shoulder and just the pints just flying everywhere. The pure, I've, I don't think I've ever had as, as, as pure emotion for a goal, maybe bar the, the, the two Chelsea goals in the Champions League or the other ones on this list, um, than that finish. I mean, I, I, we, we really thought that it was coming home. Um, and I think, I think that's also why it's a special goal as well, is it, it, it sort of brought me back down to earth in the sense that, you know, this is England. And uh, I'll never forget that moment when, when that goal went in. We really thought that, that it was going to happen. Obviously, it wasn't to be, sadly, for both of us. Um, it did not end the way we wanted it to. And Croatia fought back and Croatia won the game. But I, th- I think you're right. You know, I, I've, we've, we've had this goal a couple of times on the podcast and I've, I've said it every time that the moment itself is is what makes this special. And, I think there's a misconception of the uh, of the song "Football's Coming Home" around the world of you know believing that we believe we have this divine right to to have football as an English entity because that's really not what it's about. It's really a song of hope and a song of uh, almost self mockery. To yeah, be completely honest, I, I that, we, that we always have belief, and yet really, I think you're right in that this this was kind of a moment where we kind of dared to dream. Is it coming home? Yeah. And I, I really agree. I think the amount of times that song gets taken a little bit out, out of out of context. I think in, in it's really a song of jest. That um, and during that time, especially, I mean, there's a lot of political divide, Brexit, um, you know, elections here, and it was a moment where everyone was truly all on the same team, as as far as in my life, uh, especially, um, which was something that was really really special. And it and it definitely is a rarity for everyone in the UK to be to be cheering for the same team, you know? Or everyone, every, excuse me, everyone in England to be cheering for the same team because Lord knows the rest of the UK are not cheering for us. Yeah. Um, and and that, that kind of same sentiment happened this past weekend, uh, you know, in, in, in the game against Senegal. In the pub I'm in, in, in North London, I've got Arsenal fans either side of me saying, oh, it's so hard to cheer for Harry Kane. Which always makes me laugh because obviously club rivalries run deep in England. They run they run deep in other places in the world. Don't get me wrong, but they really run deep in England. And I guess as a Chelsea man, is that something that you find difficult when it comes to cheering for England, or are you able to compartmentalize hating someone for ninety percent of the season and then loving them while they play for England? Yeah, that's that's a really tough one. Um, I think for me, the jury goes on a case by case for the for the player. Um, <laughs> But I, I think other Chelsea fans that you'll talk to, um, especially ones uh, my my best friend and his dad, um, especially will tell you that they could they could not care less about England. I mean, it's it's you know they hate seeing um, they hate seeing those players do well. Um, so I think it's it's a very interesting question. 
um, I've actually said to the boys in the house that, I mean, I think this sort of comes though with, with being an England fan in the sense that we're so used to seeing disappointment. Um, a lot of times I've been asked about the World Cup versus Champions League. And I actually think if I was a player, I'd probably rather win the Champions League, um, which a lot of people will find a, quite hard to believe. But I think that just sort of goes down to the fact that we're England. Like we always lose. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter who we put on the pitch. We'll always find a way to lose. And I think that kind of runs with, with the fact that people um, have sort of created this, you know, oh, well, we're going to lose anyway. So why would I even support those players doing well? Before we go on to England in the in the here and now in the World Cup, just just a word on the goal scorer himself, Kieran Trippier, who I think has had a very interesting career um, in everything that he's done. You know, he's bounced around a few different clubs and, and played at a high level. And also the rare English player who's played abroad in Europe and, and been successful for himself in, in the Champions League over there. Um, well, yeah, talk me through your feelings on Kieran Trippier as a player. Kieran Trippier as a player... Um... I, I think he has to be applauded for going abroad, actually. I'm not sure whether Atletico Madrid was really suiting. Well, maybe it was. I'm I'm not too sure. It's a tough one. I, I don't really have ill feeling or, or happiness towards him. I, th- I think he will, you know, go down as a player that had a decent career, that had a couple of sparkling moments. I mean, he's a great taker of a free kick, that's for sure. But I think he's done tremendously well this season. And I think he would definitely be considered probably the best right-back in the Premier League based on form at the moment. And I think he's someone that, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm, a, big, I'm a big supporter of someone that, that works hard. I think that that's, you know, if, if, if you don't play very well, the least you can do is work hard. And I think he's someone that epitomises that. Um, and I, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't really have ill feeling or, or happiness towards him. I think... I think he's a, a decent right back and um um I actually I, it's tough for the game coming up I'm sure we'll talk about it for the for the game against France um I think you might have to go with Walker for his pace to try and keep up with Mbappe but I think based on form I might have been inclined to to stick with Trippier for this one but it seems as though Gareth is going to go with with Walker but um I think he still would have done a pretty good job Yeah well I mean I you you're kind of you've very cleverly preempted my my next question and I'm I'm glad that you did which is basically you know as we look towards this this England game at the weekend guess yeah how do you feel about it? you know it's it we're recording this a few days before uh, England will face France in what is I mean to call it a huge game is is a massive understatement to be frank two countries that don't like each other to put it bluntly um I think the French think that we are uneducated swines and to an extent we are and i think that they we think they are a little bit stuck up and pompous and to an extent they are so i think there's there's truth in both sides of the argument uh but the countries don't really like each other don't don't love each other but both unequivocally have a lot of talent especially in this current era france is defending world champions so i agree with you completely i think it will be kyle walker at right back because i do think he will have to uh you know try and stand up against the force of nature that is Kylian Mbappe but I guess where where are you right now with 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 English football and 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 the World Cup obviously this is a time capsule that will either make us look silly or incredibly intelligent Uh, but as we sit here on the 7th of December 2022 uh, how do you feel about 
England's prospects in this yeah, World well, Cup. Well, we'll just wait and then we'll record we'll record the other side of the, the conversation <laughs> in, in, in 20 minutes and just put out whichever one is uh, is right. No, um, I I think here here we go again. It's it's always the court the, the the cautious optimism always creeps in when England's when England's um, in question. But I think the last two major tournaments, you, you've like you've got to throw us in the conversation of being able to put up a performance against the big teams. Um, you look at this France team as well, and I think they do have mistakes in them. I mean, um, you look at the Euros, and they went out to the Swiss. Um, uh, you know, in in one of the earlier rounds, um, and what's to say that they don't they don't have a bad performance on Saturday um, or Friday or whatever day it is? Um, I uh, I think this this group of England players, um, it's it's as I said earlier, to put putting rivalry rivalries aside, I think it's it's hard not to like them. I think you know it's it's nice to see a an England team that all get along and all like each other, quite obviously. They've all obviously grown up playing together um, as they're all pretty much the same age. And I think we can do it. I think no question no question about it. It's just a matter of whether what, what England team we will see. Will it be um, the team that we saw against the US and in the first 30 minutes against Senegal? Or will it be the team that we saw um, you know, against Iran and in the last hour of against Senegal? It's, you know... It's a classic, you know, toss-up of who will show up on the day, really. And if, let us allow ourselves to dream, if we beat France, we would likely be looking at Portugal in a semi-final, although that's no disrespect to Morocco, who themselves are having a fantastic tournament. And then one of the Netherlands, Argentina, Croatia and Brazil in the final. If we beat France, do you feel like that's a sign that we could go all the way? Absolutely, but I think it would mean that we'd have to pull off uh, a, a massive result against Brazil in the final. Because I think, in my opinion, I think Brazil is probably the, the strongest looking team at the moment. Um, I don't really see many, many, many cracks in their armour. The first half against uh, the Koreans was just absolutely phenomenal. And the flair they bring to the game, you can just tell that they're, they're, they're not really playing for. They don't look. They don't look like they're playing at the World Cup. They look like they're playing on Coca Cabana Beach and um, just having fun with the ball, and that's worrying. You know, when when you're watching watching Richarlison, as much as I hate him, juggle with the ball on his head, string a couple of passes together, and calmly slot and slot and go do his stupid chicken dance. I mean, it's 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 worrying, um, and I, I think we would struggle against them in the final if we were to make it that far. Um, but you can't overlook Port- Portugal or Morocco in, in the semi-final either. I mean, the amount of heartbreak we've had against Portugal in in World Cups early in my lifetime. Um, who's to say that we won't bottle it against them? I mean, and it's knockout football. Anything can happen. Um, it's 90 minutes at a time. And I think you can only look as far as against France, really, at the moment. Any any thought that it might just be similar to that Chelsea run written in the stars that this is all going to end in a Lionel Messi versus Cristiano Ronaldo final with Argentina Portugal? I I'll, I'll be honest. I really don't. I really don't see it happening. I really don't see it happening. Um, I don't think either Argentina or Portugal are strong enough to make it to the final. Um, I think although Portugal did play very very well um, uh, in their in their first knockout game, I think that. Once they start playing against teams that are a bit more solid at the back, 
um, and have a bit more of a stronger mentality in midfield, I think they'll very they'll they'll struggle quite quite um, quite badly. Right. So go on and give me your give me your final prediction before we move to your honourable mentions. What's what's the final look like and who's winning it? The final is going to be the final is Brazil versus England, and we are losing one uh, nil. <laughs> what a heartbreaker! <laughs> All right, we are through Chris's list. We have heard all about Chris's Desert Island goals by way of a very quick recap. Uh, we started firstly with Matt Letizia for Southampton against Newcastle. We had Ramirez for Chelsea against Barcelona. Didier Drogba, Chelsea against Bayern Munich. Aiden Hazard, Chelsea against Manchester City. And Kieran Trippier, England against Croatia. Chris? I have a number of questions and I'll, I'll give you a lot of time to give your honourable mentions. But my first one is, considering what you said earlier about him, no Frank Lampard on this list. An interesting omission. Was there a particular reason? Was there just not a goal that stood out? And uh, do you have any Frank Lampard honourable mentions? Honestly, that's, yeah. I, I have lots of Frank Lampard goals that I would love to include on this list. And for some reason, I just... It's so hard when you're making it to pick a five, um, and I just felt that the other five were just more important to me. Such a great run and finish, just classic, classic Frank. Uh, another, another great goal. Even though it was a penalty uh, after his mother dies, when he was playing against Liverpool in, the, in a classic, classic Champions League match, and that, that was in the same season, if I'm not corrected, um, that he scored the goal in the final as well. Um, and he smashed the penalty home and ran to the corner flag and was crying his eyes out. I think that's a moment um, that a lot of Chelsea fans will remember. Um, the goal to get his, the goal to break the, the Chelsea goal scoring record um, away at Aston Villa. Um, that's that's a goal that I will always remember exactly where I was. The fans running on, onto the pitch to, to celebrate with him as well. I, what a what a memory! I think those those three are really sticking out to me. Maybe in the FA Cup final as well. Um, he slips um, when he's taking a shot with his left foot and just. Pings one in the top corner, um, way off balance. Um, that's a fantastic goal. Um, I think that was against Portsmouth. But yeah, I'd, I'd say those are my those are my top four honourable mentions for for the him for the man himself. And then my 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 second follow up was going to be we we kind of discussed a little bit about Aiden Hazard earlier, and I wondered, especially considering your uh, disdain for Tottenham Hotspur, if Hazard's infamous equaliser in the Battle of the Bridge was given any consideration. Absolutely, um, I just I just couldn't I just couldn't put that one in the list. Bearing in mind how bad we played that season, um, yeah, I think I think yes, it was fantastic to, to to give the title to Leicester and and steal it away from Tottenham in that game, but. The fact that we were celebrating an equaliser uh, against someone that we should beat every week um, uh, <laughs> it was was why it probably didn't make the list. Um, the other goal that I was toying with from Eden Hazard um, that was was actually initially when I first texted you was actually one of the five um, was a, a goal of not great significance, but um, against against Liverpool actually in the uh, in the League Cup. Um, mm. When he picked the ball up uh, midway through the attacking half and not made not made James Milner a couple of times and then went to the byline and stuck an absolute peach of a goal into the into the far post, um, that goal purely just because of how special it was and obviously it's hard not to mention the goal that he scored against Arsenal where he took the whole team on and, and shrugged Francis Cochrane off of him before um, before putting it putting it past the keeper. That was a fantastic goal. 
So a, a, any others that we haven't mentioned, non, non-Hazard, non-Lampard? I feel like I've, I've led you a little bit here rather than letting you answer yourself. So you're, the floor is yours. Any last honourable mentions? One, one that has to be there. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for volleys. And, and the Andros Townsend goal against Man City, away at Man City, is a goal that I think is just... You could watch it over and over and over again. The technique to keep it under the bar and hit it with that much power from as far out as he was. Um, on the volley as well. Um, that that is a very very special goal. Um, I would also say as well. Um, this is a player that, although I hate the teams that he played for, or I hate the team that he played for, but Eric Cantona and, and the famous chip um, is is a goal that um, similar to Letizia in watching it on Premiership years. Um, I, I love that goal and the celebration to go with it um, of of just standing to to his ovation was just unbelievable. I mean, he was a he was a fantastic player, um, and and one that I'm sure you you love as well. I think that goal was just absolutely phenomenal. Well, I now owe you. I think I now owe you forty bucks. Twenty bucks for being nice <laughs> to me, and twenty twenty bucks for finishing on a compliment to Eric Cantona, <laughs> which is always a way into my good graces. Chris, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Um, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, sharing your Des Island goals with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've I've loved it. Always a pleasure, mate. Always a pleasure. Uh, okay, guys. Well, yeah, that's going to wrap it up for us now. Um, I'm going to get this edited and out as quickly as possible, hopefully before this England-France game at the weekend, so it's still relatively uh, relevant to all of you. Uh, as always, if you're interested in being a guest, please get in touch uh, through our social media channels. Uh, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram are there and available. And, uh, yeah, please remember to leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe, and all that good stuff that I'm supposed to say for YouTube algorithms. And we will see you very soon again next week with another guest. Thanks for listening. Cheers.